I want to invite you to open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, we'll get there momentarily. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there is one kind of at the end of each row under the chair. So feel free to grab one if you don't have one or ask the person next to you to hand it down. Uh, and uh, we'll jump into this. I want to begin kind of where this song we just sang left off because it's our starting point to really what we want to talk about today is ultimately that that because of what Jesus has done for us, dying on the cross for our sin, paying the penalty that we deserve, and raising up from the dead, offering us the promise of eternal life, we respond in worship. But, but it's something that He did for us. And so we sing, we are saved, our sins have been forgiven, God has broken every chain. We, we didn't do any of this. But in His goodness to us, God accomplished this for us, on our behalf, without our assistance. In fact, if you understand the Bible, the only thing we brought to the table, the only thing we brought into the relationship was the sin that we needed to be forgiven of. That was it. Other than that, we come entirely empty-handed before God who loves us and draws us to Himself. And so our worship is a celebration of this God who saves, this God who bled for us. And, and I would be remiss not to tell you that, that in God's grace, salvation came through this church this week through neighborhood Bible clubs. Amen? And we're excited about that, but we're also excited about what we believe will be the long haul in this ministry. As, as our families serve the families around them, get to know them, express care and concern and love for them and their children, we believe that over the long haul, not just this week, that God will do amazing things. And so again, I want to plead with you to go before the Lord in prayer. We're going to find today in First Peter chapter 2 that, that our role as the church is to be a kingdom of priests and, and priests intercede seed. They go before God on behalf of the nation surrounding them. And so I want to ask you, particularly around neighborhood Bible clubs and these ministries, to take up the role of a priest on behalf of our city and to continue to plead with the Lord in prayer for that ministry and for the souls of men and women who live next door to us and down the road and who play t-ball with our kids. Would you commit to do that with me? Because that's what we need. That's what God has asked of us. Tell you where we've been so far. We have established thoroughly and biblically that, that God is pursuing worshipers. So when we talk about gospel worship and what it means to truly worship God, it begins with the God who pursues the sinful to save them and draw them near. Not just a God who, who looks upon the wicked and says, not guilty, I, I won't judge you, although that would be more than we could ever ask for. A God who looks upon rebels like me and you and says, not guilty, and not only that, you're now my son, my daughter, and I want you to be near to me. And in Psalm 73, Asaph, when struggling with, with the world that he sees and the difficulty that he observes, says his nearness is for our good. And so God gives us himself. Not just a not guilty verdict, but, but the fountain of inexhaustible joy. He says, I'm yours and you're mine. And so God pursues us ultimately because we can't, won't, and don't pursue him. 
But what we saw last week was that in response to this God who chases after us in our sin, this God who redeems us at the cost of his only son, brutal murder, that 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 God, our lives now should be in pursuit of his glory. And so he's pursued us. And now in response to him, our lives in entirety are an act of worship. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 10, which says, whatever you do, even something little as eating or drinking, do it all to the glory of God. Romans 12, 1 told us that everything, all of life is to be lived as a spiritual sacrifice, an act of worship before God. And so you and I, day in, day out, with every breath, are intended to honor, glorify, lift up, and worship Jesus who saved us and where we want to go today is the next step because it would be dangerous for us to leave it there and for us to walk away believing that worship is just something that I do or just something that you do because the Bible is abundantly clear that worship is something that we do that it is not just a singular reality but it is a collective and communal experience as we go before the God with before God with thanksgiving and praise for what he has done. I'll give you an example early on in the, in, in the scriptures. In Acts chapter 20, you find in verse 7 the, the example that the early church had set for their activity. Where it tells us that they gathered together on the first day of the week. You'll find that earlier in Acts chapter 2. That they were together on the first day of the week. That since the beginning, the church, the believers in Jesus celebrated on the first day of the week that he had risen from the dead. That's why we meet and worship today on Sundays. That's the reason the pattern was set. Not necessarily by command, but it seemed to make sense. That Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday morning, so it made sense for us to gather to worship the risen Savior on Sunday morning. Now, more than the schedule, what I want you to see is that gathering together has been the norm for the church since the beginning of the church. It was never an understanding that we would be standalone Christians off doing our own thing and occasionally interacting with other Christians as we might cross paths, but that we were intended to walk together. In fact, it's rooted deeply even in the word that we translate to church. The Greek word is ekklesia, which means a called out assembly. So we can't be the ecclesia, we can't be the church unless we are assembling and gathering together. So from the beginning, that has been the pattern set for us. But it's not only the pattern set, it's also the command given if you go to Hebrews chapter 10. So in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, I want you to see it. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we had the example of the early church gathering together regularly to worship and for thanksgiving, for fellowship and prayer with one another. We also have a directive to continue to gather, not to neglect the assembling together for worship Thanksgiving and encouraging one another to press on. So we have an example and a command. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, we have some instruction on what it is supposed to be like when we gather. Now, you'll have an entire sermon in a few weeks on what it's supposed to look like, what the flow and feel of corporate worship is in the scriptures. But I want you to understand a little bit about this gathering because it's quite important. In Ephesians chapter 5. Do not get drunk with wine, which is debauchery. 
but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Let's go to the next one. So I want you to, to, to see what's going on here. It says, don't run around pursuing the things of the world, but, but here's what you do. Gather with one another, singing the praises of God. Singing them before the Lord. And not just then, but, but doing what? Making melody in your hearts. So I want you to see kind of the combination of two things that are quite important. Is that there is a personal and private element to worship. Where I'm doing something in my heart. Does that make sense? That, that this is something that I do that's private and personal. And yet we gather together and that spills over into something that we do that is public and communal. If you want to think about worship, there are essentially three contexts that would be helpful. There's, there's private kind of worship, like that we just talked about, where it's in our hearts, where, where our lives and, and our, and our hearts and the focus of our minds is the glory of God, and that, that goes with me everywhere I go. There's also a secondary step, which is what I would call family worship, where, where family units, household units gather together to praise God with one another for family devotions, for times of prayer, Bible reading, even singing. And, and, and there's no one musically gifted in our home. Okay? So I'm not saying it's phenomenal, but I'm saying we love to praise the Lord. And it's this weird mix of music because, um, so there's old hymns that, that we love from growing up. There's kind of bluegrass country stuff because of a season we did in Greenville, Texas. And then there's some, some music that's more like what we do in worship here. And so, uh, so our kids will get down with, um, uh, what a mighty fortress is our God. Or I saw the light with a lot of twang to it. Or, or some of the stuff that we do on Sunday morning. And they love it. And, and I think Claire's probably the most talented musician in the bunch. And she's four. Um, and, and we do Bible reading together. We do prayer with one another. And, and so there's, there's private worship which overflows. Because I love Jesus. I want my kids to love Jesus. I want my wife to love Jesus. And because our family loves Jesus, we gather together with other believers. And it spills over again into a larger gathering. Where we get together with other Christians and we, we sing praises to Jesus and we share stories of what Jesus is doing because I don't know about you, there are times when I need to be reminded that God still saves, that God is still good, still faithful, and even in the midst of, of whatever spiritual drought or struggle I may be in, to hear God's redemption playing out in someone else's life brings cause for praise to me and hope and faithfulness then wells up in me as we sing songs to one another as we celebrate what God is doing. So there's there's this private, then this family, and then this collective corporate worship environment. All of them are very important. All of them are extremely important. So what I want to do today out of First Peter is begin to ask the question, why is it so important? Why is corporate worship as a community of faith so significant? And in First Peter, we get some really, really important teaching here. Now, this may seem redundant to some of you because we spent uh, what, the better part of uh, a year almost, at least half a year in First and Second Peter, but it bears going back to with the focus on corporate worship. So in chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. 
Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but to those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But look at verse 9, very important. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So I want you to see something here. And it gets down to the role of worship in the life of the church, in the life of the assembly of Christians. See, it isn't that worship is one of the things that we do. It's not like we sing a few songs to kind of get everyone's attention focused so that I can come up and preach a sermon. In fact, rightly understood, what we do here and now in teaching the Bible is incomplete, insufficient, if it doesn't lead to us being a people of worship. That the goal is that our lives and our church are committed to the glory of God, whatever the cost. That's, that's why I'm passionate about teaching the Bible. Not because I'm passionate about teaching the Bible, period, but because I'm passionate about what God says He does when His Word is presented before people. We want to see this, our lives all transformed with a passion for God's glory. And then as that occurs, the spillover into this church and our small groups and our families where that passion becomes catching and growing and multiplies. So I want you to see a couple of things in, in 1 Peter 2. One is that there is a completed reality that is spoken of. And what I mean by that is he's going to proclaim some things to the church and say, you are these things. You are. And so I want you to look at verse 9 with me, and you'll, you'll see them. He says, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for his possession. You are those things. And, and so the Lord begins to teach us about our identity as a people. He says, you are these things. Now, I want to note that the you is plural, and so it's speaking to us collectively. So that would be you all, or for those of us in town ball, y'all. So this isn't a singular command like skeet is being built up into a, a spiritual house. This isn't, none of this is singular. It's all plural second person. You all, all of you are being built up to this together. And so I want you to see the descriptions. He says, you are a chosen race. Now, the, the Greek word is genos. Now, immediately, you know, you can see kind of a connection between that word and the word genetics. Now, if you look around this room, uh, we don't look the same. In fact, we very few of us have actual genetic connections that are very close. I mean, I guess if you go back forever ago, we're somehow all connected. I don't know if you've ever done your genealogy. Uh, we got on uh, Ancestry.com, and we're able to track down our lineage to Adam. Now, one, I think it was bogus. But two, it's somewhat anticlimactic, isn't it? It's kind of like, well, we sort of already knew that. Um, I paid 14 bucks a month for three months to figure out what Genesis 1 would have told me for free. Um, we don't have a close familial connection with each other in terms of genetic code. And yet God's going to say, you are a people, right? A chosen race. Now, now, immediately what I want you to understand is that this being a chosen race has absolutely nothing to do with what we would describe as race. 
And, and so we are brothers and sisters in Christ with people of all sorts of, of ethnic backgrounds and, and shades of pigment because, because we are part of a single family as God's children. We're adopted and His. And so we're a chosen race, not by the will of man, not by bloodline, but by the will of God and His choosing to redeem us. And and I want you to understand the significant thing about that is that whatever in this world that makes us different, that divides us, the Bible is telling us clearly that what we have in Christ is more significant to unify us than what this world would give us that divides us. Which is why in, in deep sincerity I can point to men and women in Africa who we dearly love, who serve the church, who partner with us in ministry and call them brothers and sisters. Not because we have genetic code in, in, in similarity, but because we've been adopted by God our Heavenly Father. And the Bible says we are now a people. We are a race. We have something that connects us that is far deeper than what divides us. Second, he says you are a royal priesthood. Now, he's quoting Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, where he says, You are a royal priesthood. That was God's intention for Israel, to be a kingdom of priests. Now, we're royal not because we are royalty, but rather because we've been commissioned by the king of all heaven and earth to be his ambassadors. So we go under his authority, under his strength and power. We are servants of the king with his support and backing, and yet we serve as priests. And the role of a priest is is to do a few things. One is to intercede before God on behalf of those around them. So the priests in the Old Testament would go before the Lord and they would make prayers of intercession before God, asking for God's mercy on them. And so we have now been handed that role to all nations. So we take up the role of intercessor, also as servant and as worshiper of God when we understand ourselves as a kingdom of priests. Priests also offer sacrifices. And in Hebrews chapter 13, the scriptures tell us what those sacrifices are. Beginning in verse 15. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good or to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And I want you to see this. He said we're giving sacrifices of praise to God, and it's encompassing a lot of things. First, he's saying this encompasses lips that acknowledge his name. Now, I want, I want to point out, this is not me saying exclusively surrounded by other Christians, I love Jesus. But he, what he's getting at is an acknowledgement before all men that Jesus is Lord. In the context of Hebrews 13, what he's encouraging the people to do is to be willing to suffer greatly, even the way that Christ did, being drugged out of the city and crucified for the name of Jesus. And so when he says that praise is lips that acknowledge his name, he's not saying, you, you sing songs around other Christians and you get quiet on Monday morning if the temperature changes. He's saying you'd be willing to go out of the camp to suffer greatly for acknowledging Jesus as Lord. So it's our praise before all men, all women, regardless of their desire to follow or accept it. It is a continual offering up of praise to him. It is doing good things. 
It is following those that God has placed us under. You begin to see this rhythm that that worship isn't just about singing on Sunday morning. That it's this all-encompassing life of devotion to God, to His glory, to His Son, and to His mission. We offer up sacrifices as a kingdom of priests. And third, he tells us we are a holy nation. Again, he's going to come back to this familial understanding that we are a people group. And he says, before you weren't a people, but now you are. And you're holy. Generally, when we speak of holiness, we, we're talking about a sense of moral purity. And that's certainly a piece of it. But when you read the entirety of the Bible, the discussion of holiness at its root is to be set apart. With a particular purpose. Not to be set apart just to be set apart, but to be set apart for a reason. If you want to read in on this a little bit, in 2 Timothy 2, the Bible's going to tell us, hey, there are all sorts of vessels in one home. There are some for, for kind of ignoble uses. And so if you think about a great home before uh, there is in, in-house plumbing, there's all sorts of pots and pans in the home. Some of them are bedpans. Some of them are fine china for special dining. And what, what 2 Timothy says is, cleanse yourself. So now we're talking about this ethical, moral peace where the Spirit changes us, transforms us, gives us victory over sin and temptation. So, yes, that's going to happen. But you do that so that you can be useful to the Master. And so he says, you're a holy people. It's not just about moral purity. It's about usefulness to God. You are a holy nation set apart for his possession, to enjoy his presence and to pursue his purpose. And I want you to just let that soak in. God looks at us with all of our failings, with all of our problems. And he says, you are these things. You are. Because I've made you these things. Because I've declared this is true of you. Now, there's also a piece of this that we see in, in verse 5 and verse 9 that is a progressive reality that is growing and emerging within us. Now, not just within us individually. Again, this is a collective thing. So I want you to see in verse 5 what is emerging in us. He says, you are being built up into something. You're being built up into, as living stones into a spiritual house or a temple. To be a holy priesthood. Notice, you're being built up into this to be this. It's progressive and moving with a trajectory. It's not static saying you are these things. To offer spiritual sacrifices. And again, in verse 9, he's going to tell us the purpose of us being all of these things is that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, so God has proclaimed this is who you are. And then he tells us by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is shaping us into those things. So God has declared something to be true of us. And by his grace, he is practically working that out in us so that we are being built up into a temple. We are being built up into a priesthood. So God has said, you are this. And by my spirit changing you, I am making you these things. And I love that the verb to be built up is a passive present verb. And so here's what you think about. This is happening to us. Presently. 
That, that's the weight of the verb. You're being built up. And so, so let that soak in. Kind of chew on that for a second. And right now, wherever you sit, the work of, of God, the Holy Spirit. So the, the third person of the Trinity who hovered over the waters of deep when God created the earth, who Romans 8 says, rose Jesus' dead body from the grave and glorified him. That same Spirit right now, present in this place, present in you if you are a believer. And he is presently, even now, this very second, working on you to build us up into a place of praise and worship to the glory of Jesus. Right now. And this is His doing in us individually and the weight of this text is collectively. We didn't just come to church today and sing some songs, that there's something far more mysterious that we can't even comprehend happening, even at this moment. So he is doing this work so that we will be built up as a people of worship. You notice, I want you to look at the imagery here. The imagery is of a temple, a priesthood sacrifices. The, the strong and consistent imagery used here through the first century word world is, is just screaming, this is about worship. You don't talk about temples unless you're talking about worship. You don't talk about priests unless you're talking about worship. You don't talk about sacrifices unless you're talking about worship. And what he's saying is God is making you a people of praise. A people of thanksgiving to God for redeeming them. And that's His work in us is to transform us day after day so that this is progressively more true so that when we enter into eternity and we see the imagery of revelation, we'll be prepared for an eternity of rejoicing in His presence. Now, I don't want it to end there. Because I, I fear, as we talk about really two things a lot, we're talking about worship a lot, but remember, this is gospel-driven, gospel-centered worship. So this, we're rejoicing in God for saving us, that's the reason for our praise, that's the thing that's drawn us to Him. But there's also this mission of disciples being made, and we talk about that a lot, our purpose statement. Tomo Bible Church exists. To glorify Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nations. That's what we're here from, but that's not separate and distinct from worship. The two are inseparable. So again, notice the imagery. And that building a people of praise has the intention of them proclaiming the greatness, the virtue, the saving deeds of the God who saved us. This translation says, His excellencies. His virtue and greatness, His power and love and compassion that we are to proclaim them. And the word proclaim doesn't just mean to say once or twice. It's to thoroughly proclaim throughout. It's the word that you would use of a king giving an edict that he wanted read everywhere. So you see these movies like the Robin Head movie where the, the guy hops off his horse and he's got the scroll and he's got a message from the king and then he nails it to the tree. That's the kind of imagery being used here is that the king has sent messengers out to thoroughly proclaim the excellencies of the God who saved us. And that proclamation is an act of worship. It's not separate. That our worship is completed when we proclaim His goodness. C.S. Lewis in his reflections on the Psalms put it this way. He said, we delight to praise what we enjoy. Because praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. 
It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. And I want to walk you through what C.S. Lewis, the argument he's made here. What he's saying is that praising something before others is not a separate thing from enjoying it, but it is the completion of enjoying something. And so for someone who dearly loves their wife to tell them how beautiful they are, it is not because they kind of sense, well, she needs to hear this five times a day or otherwise she may not believe it. Rather, it's a cry from the heart that says, I rejoice in this person. I love her. And so I speak highly of her and I speak highly to her and I celebrate her because she has captured my heart, which is, by the way, why it bothers me so much to find men and women uh making jokes that are that cut about their spouses right what we delight in we speak highly of and we know this to be true right you get around someone that's a diehard aggie fan notice i said aggie and nobody whooped in here you guys are doing really really well there's a lot of maturity going on i'm praising the lord right now i'm just kidding now, let's be honest, whatever your team is, right? If you get around that person, they're going to tell you how awesome it is, right? And I know like this offseason has been hard for Aggie fans not to say anything because, you know, you got you got Johnny football coming back if he doesn't leave town over a parking ticket. Um, and everything's promising. So we're going to celebrate it. And when the season rolls on, you start to win some games uh, and not shut down in the fourth quarter as you have a habit of. Um, Things will be awesome. And, and it will be natural for you to come everywhere you go with your A&M polo shirt on. Because it has a collar, it's appropriate for work. And you'll just, you'll celebrate it. It's natural, right? And if by some strike of lightning, U of H becomes competitive in football again, I'll do the same thing. I'll, 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 be, I'll be preaching in the U of H polo shirt because it has a collar, it's appropriate. Because we celebrate what we enjoy and we invite others to enjoy it with us people who love music right oh i got this new i used to say cd but nobody buys them right so i downloaded this new thing and and you want people to hear this music you enjoy because that is the expected completion of enjoying something and so our praise to god is not some extra thing that god has commanded of us it's the completion of knowing who he is And knowing the God who saved us and loving him so much that that we want other people to love him as well. Because here's the thing you need to get is that Jesus is worthy of the praise of every lip on under heaven and earth. Every person who's ever walked the face of the earth, Jesus is worthy of their praise and adoration and all of the, the joy and glory that they can give. He's worthy of it. And so him not receiving it is a travesty of the greatest order. And because we love him and we love his glory, we, we want everyone to praise him. Because he's worth it. And because our joy expands and overflows when other people celebrate him with us. And so here's what I want you to get out of this today. Is that we cannot worship alone. 
Not entirely. We can do it as part of our walk in the faith, but it is intended to gather together with other believers and spill over onto one another, and that that gathering is intended to inspire, motivate, stir us up for that praise and worship to spill over onto everyone around us until all of the nations have heard of this great king, because the picture of Revelation is men and women from every tribe and language and people and nation praising Him forever. And God has called us as a people of praise to thoroughly proclaim His praises to everyone. So this isn't about mission or worship. This is understanding that mission is worship and that worship is our mission. My prayer for this church is that our passion for Jesus And desire for his glory to be seen and enjoyed. Would do what God has told us he's going to do in 1 Peter 2. That it would begin to tear down any walls of division. Begin to tear down anything that separates us. Whether it's ethnic or economic or generational or family background. And that our passion for Jesus and his glory in every nation. Would override all of that. So that we would be a people. A holy people nation, a chosen race, a people for his possession to proclaim his excellencies to the entire world. Let's pray before we praise this Jesus some more. Father God, we thank you for your son who died for us. Jesus, we thank you for your love expressed on the cross as you willfully died for us. We thank you for sending your spirit to transform and strengthen us and empower us. And Holy Spirit, we praise you for your saving work amongst us. We praise you that you're at work building us into a people of praise. We pray that you would move freely here. Lord, I pray on behalf of this Church, on behalf of this people, we submit to your spirit's leading and movement, and we pray that he would transform us individually and collectively, and that in doing that, we would be like never before a people of praise and proclamation. In Jesus' name, amen.